This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Before I start, I'm going to apologize, like I always do, for my sensitive mic and my shitty cracking voice. I'm going through it again, having a real rough time with life lately. But what else is new? Keep me in your thoughts, drop some likes and shit, and tell a friend about my murder stories. Much love to all of you. I fucking hate cops. If you've been here before, you already know that. I have a deep-seated disdain for those who carry a badge that can be traced back to when I was a small child. My dad, being the upstanding, law-abiding citizen that he is, taught my young self that cops are bad and should be feared. I mean, maybe he was onto something. In my 29 years on this earth, I've had a few run-ins with the law, mostly as a victim, but also as a dumb teenager. In all those interactions, only two of them have been remotely positive. Police are supposed to protect and serve their communities. That's kind of the job description, isn't it? My local cops have never, to my knowledge, shot an unarmed black man or knelt on someone's neck as they overdosed. But they don't investigate crimes properly. They pick a suspect and make the evidence fit. The police chief was fired a few years ago for corruption. They spend their time and resources setting up speed traps on the highway next to my house instead of dealing with the growing tweaker problem we seem to be having lately. That being said, my local cops also hand out glow sticks to kids on Halloween to help with nighttime visibility. Don't get me started on other police departments in Salt Lake County, West Valley especially. They are their own special breed of corruption. I have my issues with the police, but in those times where I want to set the entire county of Salt Lake on fire to protest their shitty actions, I always try to remember. They're human. They have families. Many of them chose this career path because they want to do something good for their communities. Today's episode isn't about George Floyd or Bernardo Palacios Carbajal. I clickbaited you. There's a lot of brutality in this one, but it's directed at the police. Grab a bulletproof vest and a donut, because today we're talking about cop killers. In the very first episode of this podcast, all the way back in April of 2023, I did a brief overview of the death penalty. Its history, most recent executions at the time, stuff like that. I don't recommend going back to listen to it, as the audio is terrible, and I was a nervous wreck. But I find it kind of odd that a man I mentioned briefly in that episode is popping back up in this one. Full fucking circle, let me tell you. It's almost a given that those who end up in prison come from broken homes. It's a very important ingredient in psychopath soup. The first cop killer I'm going to tell you about came from the textbook definition of a broken home. He had an alcoholic mother and a father who walked out when the boy was just six, probably tired of his wife's drinking. Because of this, Donald Dilbeck was in and out of foster homes until he was 15. On April 11, 1979, the then 16-year-old Dilbeck was hanging out at the beach in a stolen car in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. 
He dropped out of high school and run away, and honestly didn't have anything better to be doing. A concerned civilian called the police to report the suspicious vehicle, and Lee County Deputy Dwight Hall responded to the call. He questioned Dilbeck about what he was doing on a closed beach in a stolen car, and Dilbeck took off. Dwight chased him and was able to catch up to him. A struggle ensued, and Dilbeck managed to get a hold of the officer's gun. Dwight was shot to death. Despite being only 16, Dilbeck was given a life sentence for this. Prison is supposed to contain the violent psychopaths in our society, but some figure out creative ways to escape. In early February of 1983, Dilbeck somehow escaped prison, but was recaptured pretty quickly. An additional one year and one day was tacked onto his life sentence. For whatever reason, the state of Florida decided to give him a mandatory minimum of 25 years and move him to a lower security facility. While here, he was disciplined a handful of times for things like drinking intoxicants and attempted assault. Gotta love toilet wine. On June 22, 1990, the now 27-year-old man was working on a catering crew at the Quincy Vocational Center. When I think prison jobs, that uh, definitely is not one that comes to mind. I probably thought twice about letting inmates out to serve people food after Dilbeck walked away from his job site and ended up in Tallahassee. He stole a paring knife, and just two days after his escape, he used it to try to carjack a woman named Robbie Faye Van. She resisted, and he stabbed her multiple times. The vehicle, which had been in motion at the time of the attack, crashed in the parking lot. Dilbeck fled and was chased by a security guard. Police responding to calls of a crash, followed by calls of a stabbing, rushed to the scene and tracked the armed man down to a nearby backyard. The governor at the time, Bob Martinez, called for the correctional officers involved when Dilbeck escaped to be fired, as well as stricter security on inmates. Dilbeck was convicted of armed robbery, armed burglary, and first-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he asked the judge for a life sentence and said, I'm really sorry for what happened. I wish it didn't, not because I'm standing here, but because it happened. I'm asking for a life sentence, not for my sake, but for my parents' sake. The same parents who abandoned him as a child told the judge that their son had been damaged and abused. Donald David Dilbeck was executed by lethal injection on February 23, 2023. His execution was Florida's first since 2019. If memory serves me correctly, I didn't do a deep dive into his crimes back in April. I just glossed over it to get a few bits of information. I knew about the murder that got him a death sentence, but I didn't recall him being a cop killer. Such a weird concept. Dwight Hall was just a man doing his job, checking on a suspicious vehicle that had been reported by a concerned citizen. Dwight had a wife and two kids, and had only been a police officer for two years when he was taken from this world by a criminal. Dilbeck's last words were an attack on the man who signed his death warrant. I know I hurt people when I was young. I really messed up. But I know Ron DeSantis has done a lot worse. He's taken a lot from a lot of people. I speak for all men, women, and children. He's put his foot on our necks. Ron DeSantis and other people like him can suck our dicks. Spoken like a man who can't accept the punishment he earned with his deplorable actions. 30 years of life that Deputy Hall and Robbie Fay Van didn't get to have. Be grateful you got that. 
His last meal was fried shrimp, onion rings, mushrooms, pecan pie, butter pecan ice cream, and a chapa bar. What comes to mind when I say cop killer? Is it a thug with a glock and pants that need to be pulled up? Is it a dusty looking white guy with cowboy boots on the side of a rural highway? Is it a dude in tactical gear out in the wilderness? Whatever it is, I'm sure you're not picturing a southern belle. Julia Womack was born on July 13, 1968 in Marietta, Georgia. Soon after her birth, her mother gave her up for adoption. She was adopted by the Womacks, whose marriage dissolved when Julia was just five. Her adoptive mother took full custody of her at this point and went on to remarry. The young Julia didn't get along with her new stepfather, and drugs quickly became a part of her life. She was eventually admitted to a clinic for her drug abuse issues. In the 90s, when Julia was in her early 20s, she began working as a 911 dispatcher. Her dream was to become a cop, but she failed the psychological exam. Stay fucking tuned, because here in a minute, that's gonna make a lot more sense. In 1991, Julia met a Cobb County police officer named Glenn Turner and decided to pursue him. They were married in August of the following year. The honeymoon phase didn't last long. After Julia quit her job, Glenn took on a second job as a gas station attendant to make ends meet. Julia continued to spend more money than he could make, and before long, they were sleeping in separate bedrooms. Money is often a strain on relationships. Trust me, I know all about that. Cheating is another issue that comes into play more frequently than it should. I know all about that, too. Julia must have had a thing for men in uniform, because she began an affair with a firefighter. I mean, I get it. Power is sexy. But Julia took the phrase, fuck the police, a bit too literally for my taste. Glenn was unaware of his wife's promiscuity, but by 1995 had begun planning to move out and divorce her. On March 2nd, 1995, Glenn arrived to the emergency room complaining of flu-like symptoms. After being treated, he was sent home. Julia arrived home the next day and found him deceased. His death was ruled to be from natural causes because he had an irregular heartbeat. Oh god. I have an irregular heartbeat. Don't do ecstasy, kids. It'll fuck you up. Just send it to me. After Glenn died, Julia made the obvious choice to move in with Randy Thompson, the man she'd been cheating on him with. She brought with her $153,000 in life insurance and pension money from her husband's death. Julia and Randy lived happily together, bought a house, and had a couple of kids. Apparently, Julia just can't pick good men, though, because they started having relationship troubles. By the year 2000, Randy moved out. On January 21st, 2001, he showed up to the hospital complaining of a severe stomach ache and constant vomiting. He was treated and sent home the same day. He made a huge mistake after leaving the hospital by accepting some jello that Julia had prepared for him. He thought those flu-like symptoms were bad before, Randy Thompson was found dead on January 22nd. His cause of death was an irregular heartbeat. Did Glenn and Randy secretly go to a lot of raves? Seems real fucking coincidental to me that they both died of irregular heartbeats. Julia would only receive $36,000 after Randy died because his $200,000 life insurance policy had lapsed. 
I apparently am not the only one who thought that two irregular heartbeats were an odd coincidence. After Randy died, Glenn's mother read his obituary in the newspaper and decided to call one of the relatives who was named. She explained that she'd lost her son in a similar way and that Julia Turner was the link between the two men. Blood tests later revealed that Randy had ethylene glycol in his system, antifreeze. In case you didn't know, antifreeze is known to have a sweet taste and can be easily hidden in dessert items or drinks. No, I'm not a serial killer, I just listen to a lot of true crime. After police found out that Julia had gone to an animal shelter asking how to kill a stray animal with poison, they exhumed Glenn's body. He was found to have ethylene glycol crystals in his kidneys. Julia was arrested for Glenn's murder and convicted in 2004. Three years later, she'd be found guilty of Randy's murder as well. Julia Lynn Turner executed herself by overdose on August 30th, 2010. Georgia, as you may be aware, is a death penalty state, but like most states, they gave Julia a pussy pass and she walked away with a life sentence. She may not be a gang member or a bank robber from the Wild West, but she's a cop killer nonetheless. She took two men away from their families for a little less than $200,000. Should have gotten the needle, but whatever, the trash took itself out. No last words or last meal on this one, obviously. Suicides usually don't end with those. This next case is a fucking monster, to be honest with you. It's got a lot of interesting little details that, when combined, paint a very messy picture. Polygamy, guns, religion, white supremacy, a strange link to the Oklahoma City bombing, and no, this is not a Utah case. There are no magic underwear to be found, just a lot of hate for minorities and distrust in the government. Are y'all up to date on your white supremacist groups? I mean, it's now 2024, and if you're right of center on the political spectrum, you're considered a white supremacist. But have you ever heard of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord? I had neither. The CSA was started in an unincorporated community in Ozark County, Missouri, of course, in 1971. The founder of this group was a polygamist by the name of James Ellison. He was a Christian man with an interest in guns. There he goes, further in the fucking stereotype. God, white Christian men just don't get it, do they? The ATF watched this man and his group like hawks, and by the end of their investigation, they found a grand total of 160 guns, mostly just normal guns you'd find in the average Missouri household, but also a Japanese version of a Lewis gun from World War I, and a live fucking anti-tank rocket. Oh, and a bunch of C4. Most of this had been stolen. I mean, I'm all for having anti-tank rockets and shit for self-defense, but yeah, you probably can't buy those at your local pawn shop. This story isn't about James Ellison and his polygamous nonsense, though. He's adjacent to it, for reasons, but he's not the main motherfucker I'm here to tell you about. Richard Snell was a member of the CSA and deeply involved in certain conspiracy theories. Snell was one of a few people involved in filming planes that landed in Mena, Arkansas. You know, the planes that many conspiracy theorists thought were used by the CIA to smuggle drugs into the country. I know, I know, our government wouldn't do that. You don't have to tell me twice. I'm a good bootlicker, just like you. 
Anyway, Snell claimed that many law enforcement agencies across western Arkansas were involved in covering up these CIA planes. He also claimed to have filmed Bill Clinton at the airport in Mena, and that an Arkansas state trooper had beaten up Snell's wife in an attempt to get her to reveal where this footage was. Clearly, this man is unhinged, but this whole thing leaves me with one question. Who would want to lick a stamp that had Bill Clinton on it? That's a King of the Hill reference. Go watch TV, you fucking normie. Sometime in 1983, Snell and two other CSA members tried to blow up a natural gas pipeline in Fulton, Arkansas with dynamite. They were unsuccessful. One of the men, Stephen Scott, was captured and convicted. Richard Snell and William Thomas somehow got away. Many other members of the CSA were arrested on weapons charges, and the group became inactive due to so many members being incarcerated or killed. Apparently, Stephen Scott was let out of prison pretty quickly after his arrest because he accompanied Snell and Thomas on a mission to kill a pawn shop owner. William Stump was shot and killed on November 3, 1983. Snell had incorrectly assumed that William was Jewish, and he lost his life because of it. The following year, on June 30th, 1984, Snell shot and killed Arkansas State Trooper Lewis Bryant near the city of DeQueen, because he was black. Lewis was a husband and father of two who had served his community for 10 years. After the murder, Snell fled across the Oklahoma state line, but only made it to Broken Bow before he encountered a roadblock. A truck driver had seen the shooting take place and noted which direction Snell was headed. At the roadblock, Snell fired at the officers and was, in turn, hit six times with the return shots. But that's not where our story ends. He survived his wounds and was arrested. He was convicted of two counts of murder, receiving life in prison for Lewis Bryant's murder, and a death sentence for that of William Stump. Not once did Snell deny his involvement in the crimes, but he didn't plead guilty either. In addition to Trooper Lewis Bryant, Four other cops died as a result of Snell's actions. They were killed in a car accident on the way to their fallen brother's funeral. All of them would have gone on to live another day if not for Richard Snell's racist rage. William Thomas pled guilty to a federal racketeering charge and walked away with 12 years, which was to be served concurrently with other sentences he'd been given in federal courts and the state of Missouri. He got this plea deal in exchange for testimony against Snell. Stephen Scott pled guilty to a non-capital charge of first-degree murder and was given 30 years in prison, 15 of which were suspended. So basically, if he kept his nose clean, 15 years in prison for murder. I know I said this isn't a Utah case, but that sentence really makes it seem like one. Richard Wayne Snell was executed by lethal injection on April 19, 1995. If that date doesn't ring a bell, it's the same day that Timothy McVeigh committed the Oklahoma City bombing. Snell had been accused of trying to blow up the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in 1983, the same building that McVeigh would later bomb. Snell abandoned the plans for that when the rocket launcher he was practicing with exploded. What is this, Grand Theft Auto? What the fuck? One of the theories here is that McVeigh carried out his attack in retaliation for Snell's execution, but it's more likely that it was retaliation for the Waco siege, which occurred on April 19th of 1993. 
probably gonna do an episode on that one of these days. Snell's last words were used to address the governor of Arkansas at the time, Jim Tucker. Well, I had a lot to say, but you have me at an inconvenience. My mind is blurred, but I'm going to say a couple of words. Governor Tucker, look over your shoulder. Justice is coming. I wouldn't trade places with you or any of your cronies. Hell has victories. I am at peace. The only thing I can find on his last meal is from a deleted Reddit comment, so it may not be accurate, but it was six pieces of fried crappy, which is a fish, I believe, a salad with blue cheese dressing, five hush puppies, and it cuts off there, so the world may never know. I've seen a lot of shit in my time researching this podcast. A lot of crazy mugshots of obviously unstable men. Some of them on drugs, some mentally deficient, some just cold and sterile. But until today, I had yet to come across a mugshot of a man with a fucking mullet. This case is definitely shorter than the last one, but I had to include it. We needed a mullet in here somewhere. Here's a pro tip for any of you criminally-minded folks out there. If you're gonna commit crimes, don't drive like a jackass to get away. All you do is bring attention to yourself. If you got a big bag of weed in the car and are living in one of those states that tries to protect people from themselves, drive carefully and don't speed too much. Reckless driving would be what led to our next felon meeting his maker in the state of Mississippi. On April 10th, 1987, a Mississippi Highway Patrol officer named David Ladner noticed a Lincoln Continental driving at a high rate of speed and swerving all over the road on Interstate 10. Clearly something was up, so he pulled the car over. Inside were Tracy Hansen and Anita Kresik, who gave the officer fake names. Hansen had a prior criminal record which included 10 felonies for things relating to theft. Officer Ladner took the keys from Hansen and put them in his pocket. Shortly after, Hansen pulled a 38 caliber pistol from somewhere and shot the officer. David ran around the car and tried to duck down behind it and roll underneath. Unfortunately, Hansen had hit the man twice in the back at close range. It's a miracle that David was able to get as far as he did. A passing motorist stopped and picked him up from the median of I-10 and took him to the hospital. David Ladner died from his wounds two days later. He had been a police officer for nine years at the time of his death, and he left behind a wife and three kids. Anita Louise Kresik was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. According to some testimony, she was the one who retrieved the gun for Hansen. A holster was found under her seat. As of 2020, she has filed a lawsuit against the Mississippi Parole Board claiming that she's been denied parole nine times only because she was convicted of murdering a police officer. Maybe it's not retaliation, Anita. Maybe it's the fact that you killed someone. Tracy Allen Hansen was executed by lethal injection on July 17, 2002. He wrote a letter to a reporter shortly before his execution and claimed that he wasn't a violent man. He had a history of theft, but never violence. This whole thing was a result of panic. As a person with anxiety that is sometimes crippling, I can understand panic. But I can't understand shooting a cop that pulled you over because you were driving like a jackass. 
Hansen's last words were long and rambling and continued on after the lethal injection process had started. I don't mind dying if it gives you closure. I'm guilty. I shot the guy. I panicked. I was running from the law. I shouldn't have had a gun. I didn't want to kill him. I'm sorry, but I know sorry doesn't mean much to some people. His last meal was what they'll be serving me every day in hell when I finally get there. Shrimp with cocktail sauce, crab meat with clarified butter, scallops, broiled lobster, a fried fish fillet, oysters with tartar sauce, a single Pepsi, and some chocolate. I forgot we're in the South, so seafood is pretty much a given, but fuck that. I'm a mountain creature. I like food that can breathe on land. Note to self, don't commit a capital offense in Mississippi. I don't have an 80s serial killer for you this time. I'm sure a handful of them have killed cops in the process of being caught for their other nasty crimes, but I found a 70s serial killer whose case has left me wondering what the actual fuck is going on. It's got a little bit of everything. Mental illness, the city of Baltimore, and my personal favorite, bite mark evidence. Y'all know how much I love all those things. Buckle up, this one's a hell of a ride. Lemuel Smith was born into a very religious family on July 23rd, 1941. There's not a whole lot on his early life, but what I can gather is that something wasn't quite right in his mind. The first crime he'd admit to after being caught later in life was the attempted murder of a nine-year-old girl when he was just 12. This claim was never substantiated, but even the fact that he admitted to it shows that something was up. At the age of 16, Smith would be accused of the robbery and murder of a woman who lived in his neighborhood. The case fell apart because the DA was impatient and tried too hard to get a confession. That district attorney may have been onto something. A few months after Dorothy Waterstreet was beaten to death, Smith relocated to Baltimore, of course. While here, he kidnapped a 25-year-old woman and beat her within an inch of her life. Thankfully, a witness came along and interrupted the crime. Smith was arrested for this very quickly and sentenced to 20 years in prison on an assault charge. Parole is a thing for violent offenders for some fucking reason, and after serving just half of his sentence, Smith was paroled in May of 1968. On the 20th of that month, he kidnapped and sexually assaulted a woman in New York. Once again, his victim was able to escape and survived. This was thanks to the heroic actions of Anthony and Kathleen Scipioni. I can't find exactly what they did to help, but if Google has shown me the correct man, Anthony passed away in 2021 at the age of 92. Later the same day that his second victim escaped, Smith kidnapped and raped one of his mother's friends. The woman convinced him to let her go, and he was once again arrested and sentenced to between 4 and 15 years for this crime. You get 20 years for assault in Maryland, and 4 to 15 for rape in New York. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. The parole board was apparently blind as fuck as they let Smith out in October of 1976 after just barely serving his minimum term. We've been over this before. The death penalty could probably use some reform, but the fucking parole system, that's the real problem. 
On November 24, 1976, a 48-year-old store owner named Robert Hederman and his 59-year-old secretary, Margaret Byron, were found murdered in the back of the store in Albany. This was the day before Thanksgiving of that year. Some blood and hair evidence was found, as well as human feces. All of this would prove to be valuable in the end. While police were investigating this murder, 24-year-old Joan Richburg was raped and murdered in nearby Colony. Her mutilated body was found in her car in a mall parking lot. Police linked this murder to the one in Albany due to hair evidence and a similar pattern of brutality. Smith remained free, despite being the prime suspect in both murders. Just two weeks later, on January 10, 1977, a 22-year-old woman was accosted by a man trying to lure her out of a gift shop in Albany. She resisted, so the man grabbed her 60-year-old grandmother and held her hostage, threatening to kill her. Help arrived shortly after, and the large man threw the grandmother to the ground. She was knocked out. But he wasn't finished. This unknown man intentionally stepped on the older woman's hand and broke it. Years would pass, and the grandmother would see a picture of Lemuel Smith in a newspaper and identify him as her attacker. For whatever reason, Smith was still out running the streets of New York. He was the prime suspect, but they didn't have enough to charge him. In late July of 1977, the body of 30-year-old Mara Lee Wilson was found near some train tracks in downtown Schenectady. She had been strangled and mutilated so badly that even the hardened veteran investigators were rattled. Witnesses had seen Marley get into an altercation with a large man, and police would later set their eyes on Smith as her attacker. A few weeks later, on August 19th, a young woman who worked near Marley would be kidnapped and raped by Smith. After he was finished, he forced her to drive toward Albany. During this drive, police stopped the car, and Smith was arrested without incident. A New York State police lieutenant was going over crime scene photos and noticed what appeared to be a bite mark on Marley Wilson's nose. Her body was exhumed so they could get a better look at it. This was eventually matched to an impression of Smith's bite pattern, because bite mark evidence is 100% solid. This case is full of weird science. In late October of 1977, Smith and four other men were driven to Bleecker Stadium in Albany and placed behind separate screens on the far end of the stadium. A police dog at the opposite end of the stadium was told to sniff the feces-stained clothes from the double murder of Robert Hederman and Margaret Byron. The dog immediately went across to where Smith was standing. To confirm what they'd found, they randomly shuffled the men to different screens while they were out of the dog's sight and tried the experiment again with the same result. It was successful a third time as well. Smith went the insanity route with his defense and confessed on March 5th, 1978. He gave this confession with the understanding that it would be kept secret. Not sure what the fuck he was thinking. Police used what he told them to follow up on leads they found within the confession. In addition to this, Smith claimed to have lifelong mental issues and multiple personality disorder. Apparently, he had been under the control of the spirit of his brother John, who had died from encephalitis as a baby before Smith was even born. Mental health professionals backed up his claims and said there may be other personalities as well. Add in some childhood head injuries and extreme religious abuse, and, well, you know how it happened. 
Smith's defense team initially thought that he wasn't fit to stand trial. Two doctors testified to his craziness, but wouldn't outright say that he was criminally insane. Again, being fucking crazy is not the same thing as being criminally insane. Smith was found guilty of rape and sentenced to between 10 and 20 years on March 9, 1978. A few months later, on July 21st, Smith was found guilty of kidnapping and handed an additional 25 years to life. These sentences seem oddly out of proportion to me, but whatever. This is New York. After being handed these first two sentences, Smith tried to kill himself, but was unsuccessful. On February 2nd, 1979, he was found guilty in the double murder and given 50 to life. At this point, it's just life. He's not going anywhere. Pretty sure all of these were consecutive. The courts had dismissed his indictments for the murders of Joan Richburg and Marley Wilson, as he already had no chance of getting out. Smith was sent to the Greenhaven Correctional Facility. This is a maximum security unit. On May 15, 1981, a corrections officer named Donna Payant received a phone call and told a co-worker she had a problem to take care of. Another officer working in the prison chaplain's office had called Donna down there. But if you've paid any attention during this case, you probably already know where this is going. It wasn't another corrections officer. It was Lemuel Smith. After killing her, he wrapped her in plastic and stuffed her body into a 55-gallon drum that was later disposed of in a dumpster. The co-worker Donna had talked to earlier that day returned to work to pick her up, and it was at this point she was found to be missing. The prison was put on lockdown and searched, but no trace of her was found. Search dogs later tracked her scent to the dumpster she'd been placed in. The local landfill was searched the next day, and her badly mutilated body was found. Bite marks were found on her. Coincidentally, the same guy who had observed the bite marks on Marley's body was the one to examine Donna. He instantly recognized the pattern. I guess Smith had some fucked up teeth or something. Smith was charged with Donna's murder. If convicted, he faced a mandatory death sentence. Believe it or not, New York used to actually execute people. I was surprised too. This mandatory death sentence came about due to a law on the books that was considered the only deterrent for prisoners already serving life sentences. I mean, what is there to lose in prison except your life and your butt? Smith appealed his sentence and claimed that this law was unconstitutional. Lemuel Warren Smith won his appeal and had his sentence commuted to life in prison. He's still in there. At 82 years old, he probably doesn't have a lot of time left. According to his sentencing terms, he's eligible for parole in February of 2029. So if the motherfucker makes it another five years, there's a chance he'll get out. As a punishment for Donna's murder, Smith spent 20 years in solitary confinement. If you ask me, they should have given him a death sentence. Clearly, this is one of those cases of a man whose violence can't even be contained by prison walls. Donna Payant had only been a correctional officer for one month when she was murdered. She left behind a husband and three kids. I talked about murder for insurance money, murder for racism, murder for sexual gratification, 
What are we missing? Self-defense. At least, that's what some people would call it. Depending on where you fall on the political spectrum, you might call it that too. Late on the night of December 26, 2001, Corey May was at home with his girlfriend Chantille and their 18-month-old daughter, sleeping in a chair in the living room. It happens, especially after a few drinks. They had started renting a duplex less than two months before. Unbeknownst to them, their neighbor in the other half of the duplex was a drug dealer. At least, that's what the police thought. Put a whole task force together to raid the place. Police entered the residence of Jamie Smith, who lived next to Corey and Chantille. They found barely more than a gram of marijuana. Most of it was deteriorated and would amount to nothing more than a misdemeanor. But they arrested Jamie regardless. The cops did have a warrant, as they'd received a tip about large quantities of weed being stored and sold out of this duplex. After finishing inside Jamie's apartment, they moved next door. Corey woke up to a loud crash and immediately ran for his daughter's bedroom. For whatever reason, and don't do this, it isn't smart, Corey kept an unloaded pistol in her room on top of a tall headboard. Keep your guns loaded and put them somewhere that your kids can't get to. That's the smart thing to do. Anyway, he got the gun ready and as a shadowy figure entered the room, Corey shot three times. After the shots were fired, Corey heard the intruders yell, Police! Police! As soon as he heard them, he set the gun down and pushed it away. I want you to think about this situation for a second. You're passed out in the living room and hear a loud noise. Your first instinct is to protect your family, right? You fucking should be. Whether you have guns or not, you're gonna go check out whatever you just heard. The man Corey had shot was a canine officer from the Prentice, Mississippi Police Department. He was hit three times, but only one of them hit under his bulletproof vest. Officer Ron Jones was killed in this incident. When he was found, his pistol was holstered. A black man shot an unarmed police. How the turn tables. It begs the question, though. Did these search warrants specify that the officers could enter without knocking? A handful of them claimed that they did in fact knock and announce themselves, but Corey testified that all he heard was a crash. There are a lot of questionable things in this case. The gun Corey used to defend himself from what he thought were intruders had been stolen a year prior to the incident. He claimed that a friend had given it to him. A small amount of weed was also found in his apartment. A single joint isn't enough to warrant a no-knock warrant, though. To this day, it remains unclear if those warrants authorized the cops to enter without announcing themselves. Corey had no prior criminal record. Though unemployed, it seems he was trying to do what he could for his family. In this instance, that meant shooting at whoever was breaking in. Corey pled not guilty and cited self-defense as his reason for his plea. Killing a person in self-defense in Mississippi is considered justifiable. But killing a cop in Mississippi is a capital offense, so if he were to lose, he'd be facing a death sentence. Corey Germain May was found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to death after just five hours of deliberation. He sat on death row until September 21, 2006, when his sentence was unexpectedly overturned. Judge Michael Eubanks ruled that Corey had ineffective counsel during his sentencing phase, so a new hearing was scheduled. 
Corey was given life in prison. In November of 2009, the Court of Appeals ruled that one of Corey's Sixth Amendment rights was violated by the judge not moving the case back to the county where the crime had taken place. After more court dates and legal nonsense, you guys don't pay me enough to translate legalese, we've been over this, the Mississippi Supreme Court heard the case and decided he should receive a new trial. Eventually, Corey pled guilty to manslaughter and was given 10 years, which he'd already served. He was released on July 18, 2011. Officer Ron Jones was the son of the apprentice police chief and had been on the force for five years when he was killed. He left behind his parents and two brothers. He was just 29. The lesson here is don't bust into people's houses unannounced, whether you have a badge or not. I think that's enough police brutality for one episode. The takeaway here is don't talk to cops, but don't shoot them either. They're people. They have families who love them and want them to come home safe. They put on a costume and go to work, much like everyone else does. I get to wear my homeless crackhead costume to work. The difference here is, their costumes come with a badge and a gun. Mine just comes with a gun. Anyway, cops are often bad. Murder is bad. Murdering cops is bad. Just avoid them as much as you can and everyone wins. And whether you're guilty or not, don't talk to the fucking cops. Sorry, I had to put on my Mike Boudet costume for a minute. I am, after all, recording a podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, scratch it into the wall of your jail cell. They can't hold you in there forever, so keep your fucking mouth shut and don't incriminate yourself. Subscribe wherever you found me and leave a rating or review. Catch me live on Rumble on Friday nights, usually around 10pm Mountain Time. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'm going to close this one out with a quote by Calvin Coolidge. Doesn't fit perfectly, but it'll work. Heroism is not only in the man, but in the occasion. See you next time.